Well, good evening. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome along as we gather to, to worship again this evening. Great to have you uh, with us. If you didn't uh, do so this morning, uh, please do pick up one of these little books, uh, How to Pray, uh, Five Things to Pray for Your Church. Just a helpful little uh, little piece of material just to, to go through in your devotions. As we think about really trying to encourage one another to uh, pray from the heart for one another, uh, obviously we're at the start of the year, so it's a great encouragement to do that uh, as we seek to, to pray for one another. So please do pick one of those up, uh, one per family, if you've not already done so. Uh, this evening we're going to be uh, continuing on in our series in Joshua. Uh, we're looking at the story of Rahab and her faith in the Lord and how she came to be part of the people of God. And as we come to, to worship this evening, we, we remember that we are here because of Jesus, because he has brought us in to that people, uh, because of faith in him. And the Apostle Paul, in, in different parts of the New Testament, he speaks about that. But especially in Ephesians 2, in verses 12 to 13, he speaks to the Ephesians and then to us today about where we were and where we now are today. He says, remember that at, that, that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Wonderfully, Jesus, by what he has achieved on the cross for us as we trust in him, brings us in to be a people of God because of his sacrifice for us. Let's pray as we come to the Lord this evening. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that that you draw us in to be part of your people, that we would sing praises to you for all that you have done for us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to lay down the things which are spinning in our minds and our hearts, that we would focus our full attention to you this evening, that we would be transformed by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and worthy of all praise. O Lord, you are holy, holy, holy and worthy of all our praise. Lord, as we still our hearts now and lift our prayers to you, we know you are a God we can trust in. We know you are a God who provides. Lord, provide us the peace we need now to focus in on the cross and to know what our Saviour, Lord Jesus, has done for us and to freely accept that gift, Lord. And Lord, as somebody in this fellowship shared with me in the week, you gave your life so freely for us, yet we struggle to receive it, Lord. We don't want to accept it so freely. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't turn to you in all things. Forgive us, Lord, when we don't lift all things before you and give you praise for everything you do in our lives. There is so much you provide. Lord, we're so grateful to be in this church family, Lord, to have teachers provided for us, for Colin, for Neil, for Saab, for the elders, Lord, for Nathan leading the youth ministry. Lord, there's so many people, Helen in the admins, Sarah, Caroline, Lord, there's just a list of people that you've provided for this church that we can reach out to your lost sheep in this community. Thank you, Lord, for that provision. Lord, we think of those in the community who are struggling now. We lift 
John and Barbara Ismay before you, Lord. We thank you that John has had the surgery and he is recovering, albeit slowly at home. We pray for his heart that he would look up and see you, Lord. We pray for his healing, Lord, from the cancer and the ongoing treatment and medications that John and Barbara together would find the right plan for them that works so that John can recover and enjoy the life that you have given him. We thank and praise you for Louise Ludlow, Lord, and what a joy it was to hear of her giving her heart to you. And we pray that her family would see this witness, see this statement she's made of faith, knowing and trusting that you are her Lord and Saviour. And it would affect them, Lord, and seeds would have been planted in their hearts that will grow to bear fruit for your glory, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the preaching of your word. We thank you for the comfort that will bring us. As Val comes to read, we pray that she speaks clearly from your word, that we can hear the words and they will pierce into our hearts tonight. And as Colin and Sarbanir, Lord, open up the word to us each day, we pray for your wisdom to be in them and with their boldness, knowing that it is your strength they preach with, our lives would be changed by what we hear. And Lord, thinking of the world, we pray for the conflicts around the world in Ukraine, in Israel, and in the Red Sea, Lord. We know you're in control of all things, and we trust that you will bring glory, and your glory will reign from this, Lord. We cannot see how at the moment, but we trust in you, Lord, for your protection upon us. And Lord, we pray for Josh Chard. Lord, must be disappointing for him not being able to return to Egypt and for Helen, but Lord, we know and trust that there's a reason he's not returned back there yet. And this hearing infection he has, we pray for your hand of healing now, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray that you heal him so he can return there. Lord, heal him now, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Our reading this evening is from Joshua, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og 
the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Val, thanks very much for reading for us. Let me pray before we start. Uh, Father God, we do thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, Father, please would you by your spirit as, uh, as we work our way through uh, this encounter with Rahab, please would you uh, open our eyes, uh, might you quicken our minds, might our hearts uh, be stirred and our affections for you grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help for me if you are able to follow along as we go through. Now, Nicholas Bostick, a pizza delivery man, had a fight with his girlfriend late one evening. Uh, and he decided to jump in his car and just drive around the neighbourhood just to clear his head. And as he was driving around at midnight, uh, he came across a two-storey house in his neighbourhood that was going up in flames. And Nicholas, he jumped out of his car... And he went into the burning building, uh, as you can see from the uh, picture on the left-hand side from the camera on the uh, policeman's jacket. 
um, you can see the scene. It's uh, a house that's absolutely ablaze. And he went in repeatedly, and that's the final time he came out uh, carrying uh, a small baby uh, with him. He repeatedly uh, risked his life entering the building to save five children. He did go on, you'll be pleased to hear, uh, to make a full recovery. Now, Nicholas was not a fireman, but he knew what would happen if he did nothing. Now, the thought of children being caught in the blaze uh, was more than he could bear. He knew the consequences of inaction, and so he did the thing that he had to do to save the children. Now, in our reading today, uh, we're going to come across someone else who knew that danger was coming, the lady Rahab. And in the light of that danger, Rahab acted. Now, I want us to see uh, three things uh, this evening. The actions of Rahab in verses 2 through 7. Uh, the motive, the reason Rahab did what she did in verses 8 through 21. And then we're going to look at uh, salvation that comes in the face of judgment. Okay, that's where we're going. Uh, to orientate ourselves, however, let's uh, uh, just remind ourselves uh, of uh, bits that we covered uh, last week very briefly. Uh, in Joshua 1, we see the appointment of Joshua as the leader uh, to carry his people uh, into the promised land. And it's the land that God himself has promised uh, to give to his people. And the people have been wandering uh, in the wilderness uh, for 40 years, and they find themselves now right on the edge of the promised land. And we looked at that last week. Now, again, on the edge of the promised land, they decide to send spies in to the land, to look over the land and especially to look at Jericho. And so as we enter chapter two, uh, we enter the next phase of the book uh, that looks at uh, the capture of Jericho and that stretches from chapter two through to chapter six, which we'll look at, God willing, uh, over the weeks uh, ahead. Now, the spies, uh, they move from east uh, to west across the Jordan to the fortified city of Jericho. Uh, it's not far. It's like a, it's a day's journey. Even I could do it uh, in a day. It's not far, and we read this. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, that they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. Now, the spies were told to secretly... Look over the land, especially Jericho. They were supposed to be, if you like, undercover. Yet, they've gone one day's travel into the land, and it seems like everyone knows that they're there. It's as if you like, they've uh, come across the Channel Tunnel, uh, border force have clocked them, and by the time the spies get to the local Burger King for a little bit of refreshment, uh, word has not only travelled from Dover, but it's gone to Cheltenham, it's gone round GCHQ, it's gone to King Charles, and he's secured his private uh, detail, and they've gone down to Dover, and they're kicking indoors left, right, and centre. Okay, that's kind of uh, the picture. It looks like the worst possible undercover operation imaginable. And we're told in verses 2 to 3, aren't we, uh, that the king's been told that the Israelites have come to spy out the land. 
Uh, More than that, uh, the king knows just where the spies have gone. And he sends them straight to Rahab's house. Now, if she's found to have been hiding or supporting the spies, she's in deep trouble. It's treason. The stakes are sky high. The woman, Rahab, owes the spies absolutely nothing. Uh, She's described as a prostitute. So she has absolutely no social clout. Uh, She isn't rich, which is why she sells her body. She has no economic clout. And as a woman at that time, she has no recourse, really, individually, to the law. So she has no legal clout. She's by herself, and the king has sent men. She has no military or physical clout. So the power dynamic in this encounter is all skewed against Rahab. And in the face of that, we'd have thought that under examination, she would have said, yep, there were two guys, they're upstairs, I don't know who they are, do with them what you will. And as we looked at the start of the talk, it's Nicholas Bostick facing a burning building and having to choose whether to enter it or not. Rahab, too, stood facing real danger. What to do? To do the easy thing or to do the right thing? Now, she chose the right thing. In verses 4 to 5, she repeats that she doesn't know where the spies came from. And then she says she doesn't even know where they went. So she misdirects the soldiers and we're told in verses four to six, four and six, that she hid the spies. For Bostick, it was the concern for the children in the house that sent him back into the flames. But what about Rahab? What about Rahab? What was her motive? What caused her to risk everything for the strangers in her midst? And that's our second point, the motive for Rahab's actions. Uh, but to do that, To see this uh, clearly, I just want to spend a couple of minutes helping us to see how we can get the most out of what we're told here. As we read uh, verses uh, 9 through 11, we see this. uh, And said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and the great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. And when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. There's a lot in there. And the question is, well, what does the reader, what, what does the writer want us, the reader, to see in that body And the trouble is that we're uh, not skilled or used to uh, interrogating Old Testament or even New Testament text in terms of trying to work out what the writer is trying to say. Now, in our time and place, when somebody's written something, there are lots of different ways, aren't there, for us, uh, for the writer to say, you need to think and see this. Yeah. So I'm sure we've all done it. We've underlined text when we've written it. Kind of this is important. You've got to look at this. Uh, or capitalising text, you know, a bit shouty, this is the bit that you really need to see. Or if you've got a big report, um, all the important bits have gathered together and then the first two or three pages of the report, you'll find all of the key things and then after that there's just the body of all the, all the other evidence that supports those conclusions. So we're used to, aren't we, 
seeing a bit of paper, seeing a document, and knowing where to go for the important bits uh, of information. Now, one of the ways that the Hebrew writers uh, show us uh, what the main point of what they're doing is they have something called a chiasm. Uh, it's an idea um, where a phrase is repeated around the main point. Yeah? A bit like a sandwich where you've got something at the top and then that's echoed or repeated below. And as you work your way through the text, you get to the meat of the sandwich. And that's what we have here. Okay? Uh, Hopefully you can, you can read what's on the text. So you've got, um, I know that the Lord has given you this land. So you've got A at the front and then you've got uh, A reflected at the bottom. Then you've got B's, uh, the text, B reflected. You've got C, we have heard. C reflected, we have heard of it. And then the bit in the middle, that's the bit that the writer wants you to really see. Where, where we read, the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the king, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That's what the writer wants us to see, that Rahab has learned that the land that her people are occupying, it isn't theirs. It belongs to the Lord God, the God, the one true God in heaven and on earth below, and he has given it to Israel. That's the A's. And the spies belong to the people of Israel, the people that God has chosen as his chosen people. They see that the Lord goes with his people. Rahab and the people of Jericho, they're terrified by this. They're not terrified, per se, by the two spies. They're not terrified by the million people camping on the borders of their land. But they're terrified because they know that where the people of Israel are, the Lord, their God, is not far away. And that's the bees. And they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because of C, we have heard and we have heard. And the filling in this sandwich is verse 10. The people of Jericho and of the land, they are terrified because of the two things that they've heard. And that's what the writer wants us to see. Firstly, he wants us to hear how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when the people of Israel were set free from Egypt by God. Rahab has heard how an enslaved group of people who, like her, had no economic power, no social power, no military power, no legal power. Yet, the one true God came and rescued them. Came and set them free. Set them free from their slavery to bondage. And defended them on every side as he brought them out and he brought them to himself. So she sees the rescue at the start of the journey for the people of Israel. And the might of the Lord. That's the reference to the Red Sea. Secondly, she sees the, the, the faithful deliverance of his people to the land of rest. An abundant provision for all who trusted him. And the Lord God was so mighty that no army could stand against him. That the kings of Sihon and Og, the kings supposed to protect the promised land from, the, from attack from the east. Well, they were powerless against God. And we can read of those battles in Numbers 21. Uh, the kings of Sihon and Og are completely destroyed. Now Rahab isn't terrified, or the people aren't terrified, just because of those two events. Uh, those two events are shorthand for the remembrance of everything that the Lord God has done for his people. The plagues in Egypt, the exodus, carrying them through the promised land. 
and bringing them to the edge of the promised land itself. Rahab and all the people have heard of everything God has promised and is now coming to pass, that God will indeed give his people the land promised hundreds of years earlier. They've heard and they're filled with fear. But extraordinarily, Rahab thinks and she reasons. She reasons that if the one true living God would rescue people who have no power, no prestige or standing from Egypt, if God could be for a people like that, then the one true living God could be for people like her, could be for Rahab, that God could rescue her as well. And that was the thing that gave Rahab the confidence to protect the spies. And then we read in verses 21, sorry, 12 through 21 that Rahab and the spies, uh, they make a bargain. She's going to protect the spies. And in exchange in verse 13, she pleads for the life of her family. And in verse 14, they agree. But there's a condition. Which brings us to our third point. Salvation in the face of judgment. Uh, the spies have been hidden and therefore they escape purely because of the bravery of Rahab. Uh, the spies promise that she'll be kept safe, provided she identifies herself at the time of the attack. Uh, take a look with me at verses 17 through 19. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless... When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. The spies promise to Rahab and her family that there is a way for them to be saved from the judgment of God which is to come. That when God uses the people of Israel as his instruments for this divine purpose to clear the land, she's told that it is possible to escape from the judgment of God which is going to fall on every person in Jericho. And the sign that's to be used is a scarlet cord to be tied to a window. A blood red cord tied to the frame of a window that's used as a door by the spies. And if that cord is tied and if it's visible, then God's judgment is going to pass over everyone who's in that house. The spies call Rahab to look to the Passover. Remember, the Passover was the means by which God rescued his people out of Egypt where the blood of an innocent lamb was painted on the doorframe and the family sheltered underneath the protection of the blood of the lamb. And everyone who sheltered underneath the blood of that lamb were saved when the angel of death, the destroyer, passed over the land, when the judgment of God came. And the cord here is a symbol of the blood of the lamb. Everyone in the house, when the judgment of God came, was to be saved. And what Rahab is asked to do is act out and trust 
that God of Israel, the God of the people of Israel, will indeed show mercy and in exactly the same way that he did at the time of the Passover. Rahab trusted in God's judgment passing over her. And we can see that at the end of verse at chapter 6. She trusted that God would rescue her, not because she was worthy, uh, but because of the blood of the lamb, the death of the innocent Passover lamb. So that was Rahab. And for us, well, we, we can see much more than that, can't we? We can see much more than just that Passover lamb or that scarlet cord. This side of the Passover, this side of the cross, we see the real Passover lamb. We see Jesus. And each one of us, like Rahab, unable to do anything, anything at all, to save ourselves from the coming wrath of God. We're unable by our own efforts to get out from underneath the penalty that is rightly ours. Caused by our rebellion against God. But in God's abundant and overflowing mercy and compassion, he sends his only son as the Passover lamb to rescue us. You see, Jesus came into our time and space, breaking in through the divide between heaven and earth. You see, Jesus could see us in a burning building, the flames of the judgment of God being kindled by our own rebellion against God. And he came into our building to rescue us, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. See, our salvation comes as the Father turns his face away and the judgment of God, the hell fire, which was rightly ours, falls on him and kills him. Our salvation as God turns his face away from his only son. And as we gather around the table tonight uh, to join together in the Lord's Supper, that's That's what we remember, that God himself in his son took on flesh and he came into our time and space. He lived the life that we should have lived, loving God with his whole heart. And then he died the death that we deserve in our place as our substitute. But through the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus, we know that if we will but trust in Jesus, that we will be made right with God. And we take the Lord's Supper and we allow the Spirit of God to make those truths tangible in our own hearts. And so we can see the most mighty and the most glorious of God's work, God's rescue of his people, the death of his son to bring us into his presence. And the ultimate enemy, not just the kings of Og and Sihon, but death itself defeated So that we can be brought in to the new heavens and the new earth. And that through death we'll be with God through all eternity in a place where there is no more death, no more suffering, no more pain. Where he himself will wipe away every tear. And it's a text that's bursting with application for, for instance, for evangelism in the way that Rahab brings her family in. uh, For being hungry with God's word, the way that Rahab trusted through hearing Uh, To holiness, for being willing to live the way that God calls. Obedient, trusting and following God by tying the red cord. But I want just to lift out one 
particular application, which I hope will be helpful for our hearts uh, and on our Christian journey. Now ask yourself this question. Uh, Why? Why are we told about Rahab? Uh, In this encounter with the spies, uh, Rahab, we don't learn anything, or the spies don't learn anything about the conquest of the land from Rahab. There's no intelligence that they glean. No, none at all. In fact, you know, it's it's almost comedic, isn't it? Almost after the spies have met with uh, Rahab after an abortive um, uh, mission of secret uh, uh, reconnaissance, they kind of almost immediately, in a Monty Python sort of way, run away, run away. I mean, we could go from the end of chapter 1 in our Bibles, couldn't we, to the start of chapter 3, and I guess almost, almost, miss nothing of the faithfulness of God in giving the land to his people. So, so why is this here? I think it's here, in part, as a huge encouragement to our hearts. It helps us see the faithfulness of God to his promises. And just what that means for for you and for me today. And we see that through the way that the writer has set out the contrasts between Joshua and Rahab. Uh, In chapter 1 we see uh, Joshua, don't we, as a mighty man. In chapter 2 we see Rahab as a common woman. Uh, Joshua, he's a a man of honour, respected by his peers. Rahab is a woman of ill repute. Looked down on by her peers. Uh, We see Joshua, don't we, as a military leader, a commander of men and revered by men. And then in chapter 2, we see the prostitute Rahab, demanded by men, demeaned by men. Now we see Joshua, a man of the people of God, an insider. And in chapter 2, we see Rahab, a Gentile, excluded from the covenant people of God. An outsider. In chapter 1 we see that uh, uh, Joshua has seen with his own eyes the mighty works of God. And in chapter 2 we see Rahab having only heard of the mighty works of God. Did, Did you see the really sharp contrast between Joshua and Rahab? From the highest to the lowest. And yet for both... Joshua and for Rahab, the promise of God, the promise of God, it's the same. And it's the same for us. That by faith in the mighty works of God, the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that by his spirit, the Lord will be with us now. And he will never forsake us And he will never leave us. And that he will take us, you and I who believe, into the land that he has promised. The new heavens and the new earth. And that promise comes because of the goodness and the mercy of God. It doesn't doesn't come to us because of our efforts. It doesn't come to us based on our standing or our circumstances. It's all an amazing work of grace. And it's a promise that we can rest in. I wonder, are those promises hot in your heart? 
Do those promises burn brightly in your heart? Do they thrill you? Do they excite you every day? Are God's promises, are they the engine for your life? I wonder when we stop and we think about our own lives, do our own lives reflect the enormity of the promises that are ours? Rahab heard the truths about God and it transformed her life. God used her powerfully. You see, God took the mustard seed-like faith that Rahab had and used her powerfully. And we read in the Bible that through her line, we read in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, that God placed Rahab in the line through which the Messiah came. The ultimate outsider was brought in. The richness and the depth and the beauty and the strength and the faithfulness of God's promises were as real for her as an outsider as they are for anyone else who believed. They're brought in to those promises. The ultimate outsider was brought in. God was not ashamed of Rahab. And he isn't ashamed of us who believe. So let me ask you again, does the way that we live now, does that reflect the truth of God's love for us? A love that was so deep that Jesus came and he willingly died for each one of us, for you and for me. And that God raised him again to life. And that's the promise for us too. Does your life reflect that truth? Or does it reveal that actually we trust in other things? I'm going to close in prayer. I'm just going to ask the service leader if we could have a a minute or two um, just to reflect. Um, So just before we come to communion... Just a minute or two to reflect on where in our own lives actually we stopped trusting. Where we've let the promises grow cold or thin. And just ask the Spirit of God to bring to your mind scripture that will comfort your heart, remind you of his faithfulness, remind you of his promises so that the Spirit might pour the love of God into your heart. And as we take communion this evening, just allow the Spirit just to remind you of His love for you. So let me just pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for uh, the enormity of your promises uh, toward us. So, Father God, help us uh, just to reflect on how much we are treasured and loved, how we have been brought in to your family at such enormous cost to you, but as a free gift to us. Please, would you remind us of your promises to us? 
please would you give us a clear sight of those parts of our lives where we've stopped trusting in you. And please would you help us, please would uh, you by your spirit just fan into flame our love for you again. Might our love for you burn brightly in our hearts. Might we long to step out for you in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name.